Okay, welcome to series three of A Frank Conversation With. First episode, I'm delighted uh, to be joined by Tom Hetherington, who's the Chief Executive of Holden Media. Uh, one of the uh, key things, in fact, the key thing that Tom is involved in is the events industry. Uh, and to use a technical term, that's been fucked over the last uh, 12 months or so. So uh, we're going to be having a chat about how that industry sector can potentially bounce back and recover as we start to see an easing of restrictions. Um, but Tom, who I've only got to know really over the past couple of years, is a fascinating character, uh, an individual who's interested in lots of things uh, right across the north of England. And as I say, great to be joined by him for this first episode of this new series of A Frank Conversation with. So Tom... Great Hello. to see you. Thank you for having uh, me. This is our third time of asking in terms of getting you in because we yeah. had problems with trains, then you've had a bit of an operation on your yeah. shoulder, but I, you've made it today, which I, is great. I wasn't playing hard to get. There were genuine <laughs> reasons each time, but it, it did start to feel like the fates were against us, so I'm, I'm glad we've cracked it. Third time lucky. Now, before we get into uh, the day job now, mm -hmm. uh, let me go back and talk to you about the early days of your career, how you mm -hmm. sort of got into uh, the events industry? It's a good, um, it's a good question, and, and it's not, as is so often with life, it's not a straightforward uh, progression. Um, I actually did a marine biology degree here in Liverpool, at, uh, at Liverpool University back in, in the early 90s, which was fantastic, and I, I loved the course. Um, and to be honest, I think it's quite good grounding for going into business, actually, the biological sciences, because it, it makes you <clears throat> very questioning, very analytical. Uh, you look for patterns, you look for trends, you look for gaps, or you know, you're looking for things that stand out in some way. And biology is messy. I think if you deal with stuff like physics or whatever, everything is straight lines and, and neat. Uh, whereas you, if ever you deal with data in biology, it's very kind of scattered and messy and you have to really kind of try and pick out the salient points or the trends or understand what's going on in the picture. And I actually think academically, just in terms of kind of hardwiring your brain, that's quite a good mindset to get into for um, for business. But I wasn't thinking that at the time. I was just enjoying mucking around in rock pools and, uh, and things like that. But then... Like every other student, you kind of need to pay your debts off. And uh, I'd looked at science and realised it was a kind of long and very, very structured path to any sort of success or freedom to do your own thing, really. So um, I just needed a job. And I'd always been interested in the media, writing and publishing. I was a bit of a kind of magazine geek. Uh, my dad was a chief sub on a lot of the national press when they were, when they were up in uh, Manchester. So I've always kind of been in and around journalism. And even... Even when I was young, when I was at uh, school, I used to write an amazing facts column for the Sunday Sport newspaper. Wow. Which is quite a random <laughs> thing when I was about 14, 15. No one at school would believe it. So when they used to post the checkout to me because they'd used one clipped to a kind of piece of headed notepaper, I had to bring it in and show the kids at school because they wouldn't believe that, um, that I did it. So I ended up getting a job in magazines. Or, you know, you think you're getting a job in magazines and publishing, working for a publishing company, but what you're really doing is just selling. It was a proper battery chicken sales, 80 calls a day. If you don't sell in a week, you're out. Uh, you get given the dusty old kind of Glengarry Glen Ross leads, you know, that no one has ever touched for 10 years because they're all dead as a doornail. Uh -huh. And it was back in the era of fax confirmations for orders and buying a full set of yellow pages so all the salespeople can just go through them. It was, um, it was old school stuff. Um, and the magazine that I sold on was called Business Continuity. 
quite a kind of um, narrowed niche, a very, very kind of specific element of, um, of business management. And the guy that I, I was on the magazine selling with, he was the only other guy who'd ever been able to sell on the magazine. And uh, I think a lot of people in the company were scared of him. He was a big old bloke and prone to flashes of bad temper, uh, born and bred around Ancoats and, and Beswick out in East Manchester. Um, but he and I really got on. We clicked straight away. He's one of my best friends to this day, and he is my business partner to this day. But, you know, he took me under his wings when I was uh, a bit green, fresh out of uni. Um, the funny thing is that I didn't sell in a week. Um, but Andy, because my business partner is called Andy, Andy Clayfield, he, he kind of took a bit of a punt on me. The MD was like, do we need to get rid? And Andy said, no, he's putting the calls in. I can hear him. You know, I can hear that he can do it. We just need to give him a, a bit of time. And they did, bless them. And, uh, and it turned out I could sell advertising in weird magazines over, over the phone to people who knew. So that was where the kind of career path started in the media. Uh, and so in terms of your ambitions there around publishing, given the fact that you've been writing at yeah. a, a very young age um, for a, a national publication, mm -hmm. um, was that your ambition? Did you want to become a journalist and follow in your father's footsteps? You know what, it's, a, it's an interesting question because I, I still like writing to this day, but I don't think I really understood about running businesses or stuff like that, but I liked the commercial side as well. You know, I like, I like closing a deal, I like creating something, whether it's a partnership or, you know, a new project or idea that you need to get backers for or people to support it or sponsors. I really liked the creative commercial process as well as the out-and-out -out writing uh, creative process. Um, so I moved on from there relatively quickly after about a year or so. Um, there was a job at uh, a company based down in Stockport and they did nightclub magazines. And they had a, a wonderfully named magazine which was called World Discotheque Review. <laughs> and, um, and they wanted someone to come and work on that and uh, I went down and interviewed for it. I think it's probably the only job interview I've ever done in my entire life. Um, and I got the job, and that was that was great because it was it was quite a young, sparky, creative company, and you had more freedom on on this one magazine, WDR, World Discotheque Review. They they would send you off all over the world. You had to go and represent the magazine at a trade show. I I did one in Taiwan, in Taipei, oh. in Taiwan. Um, but if they're sending you out there to kind of front it up and be the face of the magazine, they don't just want you to sell something. They're like, if you're out there, you've got to go to the big clubs, you've got to meet the operators, you've got to take some pictures, we need some articles writing about it as well, you know, and come back with some cash as well, you know, go and do some deals when you're out there. So that, that was good fun, because I got to play all the different bits of it, um, which was great. Um, but unfortunately, the culture there could be quite difficult back then, or, or certainly it wasn't, it wasn't the right fit for me. Um, I think I quickly realised that I'm a, I'm a terrible employee, um, so they had a contraction in the business after about two years and um, funnily enough I was one of the people whose name was down to be, um, to be out the door uh, which was good fun because we just bought our first house my partner and I just bought our first apartment um, with what seemed like a terrifying mortgage at the time and uh, I just came home one day with a, with a bin bag with all my kind of office stuff in and uh, Sophie was like what, what are you doing and I'm like I haven't I haven't got a job <laughs> um, and that was quite weird but also also quite thrilling as well. I don't, I don't remember feeling particularly daunted by it, in all honesty. And the nice thing was that the, the MD of the previous company, where Andy and I had worked together really, really well, made him a lot of money. You know, we, we made good money, but he did really well out of having us together on the magazine. He heard that I was available. 
I looked at all sorts of jobs and, uh, you know, looked at different opportunities, but he heard I was available and he said, look, if you come back over, I'll split your magazine off as a separate company. So we'll set up a new company, Continuity Publishing Limited, um, and you and Andy can run it. You'll be directors, you'll be shareholders, uh, minority shareholders, and you run that business like it's your own. Go and get a little cool office somewhere. So we ended up in um, Urban Splash's building, Juicy House. They were one of the first people to do all-inclusive, month-by-month rents for small creative businesses. So we took an office in there, and Kevin Hill's company, he was the MD, they did all the boring stuff like the HR and the credit control and the graphic design, and we just got to run that magazine creatively and commercially. We, we got to decide the editorial direction and, you know, decide who we were going to partner with and sell all the adverts. And um, and that was great fun. It was like having, um, it's like running your own business, but with stabilizers on. Because <laughs> I didn't have to do all the, the boring business stuff. I didn't have to worry about, you know, contracts or whatever. Mm. But we, we could run it as a kind of self-contained entity. And uh, yeah, that was great fun. That was probably... I think, you know, to be a director and a shareholder in a business in my early 20s was felt really grown up, you know, and I, I kind of got a taste for it. I thought, oh, I want to do a bit more of this. And was the intention of going into your own business almost accidental then? It was an offer that was made by somebody you worked with previously? Exactly. Or had you gone home that day and thought, actually, it might be the time now to go and do something myself? I think a combination of the two. Yeah, I think the offer from him crystallised my thinking and also the conversations I'd had with other people about other other potential opportunities. I, I think I just realised that I, I didn't want to work for people, um, really. And it's That's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I often wonder what people's motivation is to start their own business. Because we've all got to be a bit mad. Yeah. Uh, oh, without do a doubt, you've got to be masochistic. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of people say to me, cash, mm-hmm. because I wanted to make a lot of money quickly. I wanted to be making money for myself, not for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, my motivation wasn't that. Sounds to me as though I'm closer to you in this regard. Yeah. And that just working for others I uh, talk to is something that, that, that is just a little bit Difficult and challenging for some yeah. people. Yeah, I just, I'd, I realised that I didn't fundamentally um, feel comfortable in, in someone else's um, business. You know, mm. I'm quite pernickety and I can be quite contrary and I, I have my <laughs> my way that I think is uh, is right. And I just thought this is going to be a lot easier if I, if I just do the company the way I want it mm. and, and find people that fit and enjoy it, you know, and create that atmosphere rather than trying to bend myself into into shape for someone else. And I think it's really about, it's about freedom as well. I'm, um, I'm not particularly good um, at being answerable to people. And the idea, the idea that it was just the book stopped with you, as, as the cliche goes, I found really quite intoxicating. And if you, if you have a huge success, it's, it's yours, albeit you share it and do the right things, but it's your success. But equally, if you have a massive failure, there's no safety net. It's, it's your mess up, it's your fuck up. And, and you have to own that. And, and it's quite visceral. That real, absolute kind of no safety rails meritocracy. I found I found the idea quite exhilarating, and uh, I think once you've tasted it, once you've been in that environment, it's very, very hard to ever go back. I'll tell you the other interesting thing that I picked up from um, your comments so far. You were good at sales. Yeah. Now there are fortunes to be made. Mm. for really good, good sales salespeople. And it sounds to me as though you were really good salespeople. I can imagine you to be yeah. really good in that environment. So again, I suppose the question back is, in terms of a potential cash cow, mm-hmm. 
going into the world of sales and getting really high level in that world, that would have brought in, that would have paid your mortgage off quicker yeah. to start your own business, mate. I, I, got, I got offered um, a job, there was a company that did really high-end corporate hospitality at kind of global sporting events and stuff like that. I think actually it was the old days where you saw job ads in newspapers. I think it was in the Guardian media section um, and it did catch my eye and I spoke to them and they, they really liked me and, you know, basically offered me the job and this is going back um, however many years, you know, 20 odd years now. And I think the, the OTE, the on-target earnings were like 80 odd grand or something like that. Um, but I don't ever, I mean, it kind of makes you go, wow, well, that'd be all right. Back then at my age, that would have been incredible. But I don't remember really feeling excited by it because at the same time, there'd been the conversation with Kevin and I was thinking, I know I like working with Andy. We get on, we're a good little pair. The idea of having my own little business, it was partly, sounds terrible, it's partly a show-offy thing as well. Mm. I kind of like the idea of saying, oh, yeah. I've got my own business. Yeah. You know, I've got a share in a company. It sounded grown up, you know, like putting... putting in your dad's suit on when you go into job interviews like you're pretending to be a grown-up it just felt like a really cool thing so I think I quite quite like the idea of it and I quite liked the idea of telling people about it which is pathetic but there you go no I, I, I always think it's fascinating to find out what makes people uh, set their own businesses up and that is um, a bit like you really left field a bit different mm. in terms of rationale for doing so so you've got this small publishing company mm-hmm. um, Successful? It, it was successful. Yeah, it was, it was a very, very um, simple thing, really. You know, magazine, and we launched a couple of bits and pieces alongside it, a kind of yearbook directory, which is just another thing to sell on and can be very, um, very profitable. And it was ticking along really, really nicely. But at about that time, being back in Manchester in the, in the late 90s, the whole kind of cafe, bar, restaurant kind of renaissance, not even a renaissance because we didn't have it in the first place, but this kind of blossoming of a hospitality industry was really kicking in. And I, I got massively into that. Um, they're sometimes called in, in the industry now, you know, like napkin sniffers, just people who are really geeky and slightly freakly obsessed about chefs and restaurants. Um, and I, I was one of those people. I was loving it. And then a contact of mine, um, Derek, Derek and Edwina Lilly, it was Edwina Lilly who I first spoke to, who set up the Estestes chain of restaurants and then sold them um, and then set up Piccolino and the restaurant bar and grill and the individual restaurant company. Well, I spoke to them and they'd sold Estestest and they had a plan that they were going to do a website, effectively an online magazine for the restaurant industry. And they asked me to come on board and, and help them do it. And it was what I knew, which was media. And particularly, I'd got really into the kind of tech side and the online um, stuff. We were kind of doing CD-ROMs at WDR magazine and all this kind of interactive stuff, really at the, the kind of cutting edge of when that first broke through. So I felt quite au fait with the tech side. I knew how to do publishing inside out and back to front, and I was passionate about restaurants. And, and also, it was a dot-com. Back then, everyone was going to be a dot-com billionaire by Christmas, you know, and we were all going to get share options and all the rest of it. And I thought, oh, my God, this could be something... Exceptional. Um, so even though it would have meant theoretically maybe ending up with a small chair of the company down the line rather than being fully my own boss, it was just too, too exciting an opportunity. So we actually ended up selling continuity publishing. Um, so you know, we got a little payout from there, which, which at my age back then was fantastic. And I, I jumped in with um, Edwina and we set up what was initially called the restaurantgame.com. Okay. And that was totally online then? Totally online, yeah, and, uh, and that was so. That was quite a bold move. What year are we talking? That oh, we would be talking. 
Somewhere around 99, okay, something so like that. Early yeah. adopter then. Sure. Well, it's it's funny that you say that, Frank, because we were we were too early. Um, in in all honesty, we were. It was based on um, something for the fashion industry, which I think still exists now, called Worth Global Style Network (WGSN), where all the big retailers and, and kind of fashion houses pay twenty grand a year to subscribe to this need to know mission critical kind of data and information about uh, the global fashion industry. And we we thought that there could be something comparable for. Um, for hospitality, mm. but the problem was we were we were in a pre-smartphone time. So the only way you really got the internet is sitting at a desk with a with a desktop. And you know, as as we all know, really in the hospitality industry, chefs and restaurateurs, they don't sit at desks with laptops. It's not that sort of job. It's not that sort of um, of industry. So sadly, without kind of making light of the impact on the investors and everyone else, it tanked. Really, you know, it absolutely. Um, crashed we tried everything we could to to make it work um and in fact one of the things that we we tried because we were kind of building up trying to build up this membership of this website we came up with the idea of adding value making it a really easy decision for people to sign up whether they read all the content or not by saying look we will get you better merchant service deal we will get you better utility deals because we will group buy it and we will we will save you money so why would you not sign up and that side of the business, which was done as a knee-jerk panic measure to try and save this sailing website, actually turned into a company, grew into a company called Fourth Hospitality, which has become one of the global cloud platforms for IT for the restaurant sector and sold to an American company for over £100 million. Um, long after I was gone, I stress, I didn't share any of that upside. But it's funny how something that was yeah, just yeah. done as a flailing about in the water yeah, yeah. actually became the biggest part of the business. But... Going back to the bit I was interested in, which was the media, we flipped it offline and we launched a magazine, which was straight back in my comfort zone. Mm. So we, we launched Restaurant Magazine. And everyone has said it would never work, as people always do. And everyone said, you know, caterers out there, catering magazine, it's been around 130 years or whatever it is, weekly magazine, one of the biggest selling trade magazines in the country. You're not going to compete with that. And um, we had an amazing team of people. And we did. And I ended up being the marketing and events director uh, for, for the company. So looked after the magazine, but also started to do events. And that was probably, you know, that was another of those little pivot points where your life changes a little bit. We, we launched an event called the 50 Best Restaurants in the World Awards, which is an enormous event now. Huge, uh, absolutely massive um, and recognised and respected all over, all over the world. But yeah, we, we launched that. I, I ran the first two um, of those events and some of the smaller events as well. And I, I really quite enjoyed that. I liked, I liked doing events. I knew I liked paper. I knew I liked the written word. But I actually liked the live experience side as well, pulling something together and, and making that space happen with those people and that engagement and interaction. You know, you feel... Feels a bit like alchemy, really, you know, to whip all that together and create a, a, a thing that people are in in the moment, in the space, enjoying it. Fascinating. And come back to that in a second in terms of uh, your love of events, because obviously you have got a passion uh, for that. But you talking about Manchester in those heady days of the mm. mid to late nineties, and there was a feeling around the place, wasn't there, that something it was special was happening? That it was, you know, the the, the, uh, the Manchester yep. thing was around. I spent quite a bit of time uh, in the city at, uh, at, during that period because I was a mate of Tony Wilson. Mm -hmm. So obviously he was 
King of Manchester. Absolutely. Wasn't he? I mean, yeah. People think Andy Burnham's big. Oh, <laughs> dear me. Um, and so Manchester, I felt during that period, that's the time it did start to become the capital of the north mm-hmm. uh, for me. You know, prior to that, it was like many other northern cities, you know, it had gone through the doldrums. It had a really tough time in terms of industrial changes that had happened. I haven't been particularly kind to it. Um, but I was a visitor. You know, I had my passport. I mm-hmm. used to go in uh, on a fairly regular basis. But to be growing up in that must have been really amazing. exciting. So sort of tell, tell us your reflections of that period, Tom. Well... It was, a, it was um, I sound like an old man here, but it was a simpler time, you know, pre-kids and tiny mortgage and all the rest of it. You know, life uh, life felt very, very easy back then. But it, it, it was funny because I'd gone away to university. I've always been born and bred around around Manchester, always lived around Manchester and gone out in Manchester. And I went away from Manchester, it felt like one city, and I went away to university for three years. And then when I came back, it, it felt like the city had shifted. And I, I was there in the era of... Um, down Whitworth Street, there was uh, bars like Canal Bar and Alaska and Atlas had opened and they all had out, outdoor spaces, you know, in, in Manchester with its sometimes uh, changeable weather. Everyone was sitting outdoors drinking like these, you know, premium European lagers that you'd never heard of before. And it, it just felt really, really aspirational, really cool. And then there was the Northern Court was starting to blossom. So Bar 10 and Dry Bar and Isobar and all these sorts of places as well. Um, yeah, it felt like it felt like every week there was a new opening, and um, because I get quite geeky and OCD about stuff, I'm quite a kind of completist and like like organising everything. I kind of got into the habit of trying to go to every new launch that opened because I wanted to go and have been and have an opinion on it and know about it and have experienced it. Um, and back then that was quite easy. You know, you'd be talking one every other week or a couple of months or whatever. So I would make sure that I did not miss one. If a new bar or a new restaurant opened, I would be there. Obviously, that's near impossible now. You'd, you'd drink yourself to death. It doesn't even bear thinking about. But yeah, back then, keeping on top of all the um, all the new restaurants and everything was great. And there were some incredible places. It was the era when places like Machinaire came through and really good, fun, casual kind of places like Grinch were in the heyday. Mm. And there was Sarasota above Mantos, which a lot of people forget, on um, Canal Street, but it had a retractable roof. You know, I, I remember sitting yeah, up there with that, my yeah. mates, with yeah. the, the roof cranked back, and we had a bottle, we actually ordered like a relatively expensive bottle of wine. It was, a, I think it was a Gewurz Traminer, and it's the first time I'd ever tried and failed to pronounce the grape. Uh, but we felt so sophisticated, you know, in our 20s with cool media jobs, in an open rooftop bar in the gay village in Manchester, drinking wine we can't pronounce. Uh, we, yeah, we thought the whole world was ahead of us. It was, yeah. it was tremendously exciting. Yeah, whilst it was such a, a dynamic time, I think, in terms of the city's history, most, the period, I think, was the catalyst for what's gone on uh, and Manchester to become the great city that, that it's become. And, you know, not only was there a fantastic bar restaurant scene starting to emerge, but you know, the whole thing around Happy Mondays, Joy Division, all that sort of stuff was going on as well around that time, wasn't it? So Manchester was absolutely the place to be. Uh, and through that, you've set up this restaurant magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not a Manchester-focused magazine from what I'm picking no, up. No, that, that was, a, that was national. a national magazine. Okay. And, so um, so how, does, how does that play out? How does 
the well, bank sort of start to reach into other parts of the country and, and get well, engaged there? Well, my, my story there came to a, a bit of an end, actually. You will, you will notice is a, this is becoming a recurrent theme, but <laughs> they decided to move the head office to London. So I either had to go to London or I got made redundant. So, you know, here we are again, second time around. It's like Ross in Friends being the three times married guy. I'm, I'm like the twice. You never fancied London? Well, I didn't. No, I absolutely, categorically did not in any way, shape or form. There, there was not even a, a moment's wavering about it. Um, I love London. I've just come back. I was, in, I was in London yesterday, had an absolutely fantastic time. I, I adore it as a visitor. I've never felt any any sort of pull to, to live there at all. So I knew that was the that it was right for me to jump ship. And to be honest, I've been getting itchy feet anyway. I've been there for five years and it was starting to feel like I was working for someone else and as the company gets bigger and more political, you know, you just feel this isn't mine. So I I was starting to kind of get my head turned and, and look around. So it, it felt it felt like serendipity really and uh, and this redundancy when I, I came home with my bin bag of, of worldly belongings. We had our first little boy on the way and we just bought a big wreck of a house up in up in Glossop, my my hometown, that um, we'd sold our city centre apartment and we were we were gonna do up this house and uh, and become parents. So yeah, yet again I come home with a bag going, hey, Good time, I've, Tom. I've been made redundant <laughs> again and all the money that we were gonna do the house up with, we're now gonna need to put it into setting up a new um, a new business of some sort. So we're gonna have to live in a shithole for the next um, a couple of years until we hopefully make some money, which um, which made me really popular. So, yeah, it, it maybe forced my hand a little bit, but that, that was the point at which I thought, you know what, I'm just going to set a business up, my business, and I'm, I'm going to run it and shape it and, and do my own thing. And at this point, is Andy still with you? or? So that's an interesting question. So when I left and went to Restaurant Magazine... Um, and help build that company up. I actually, Andy was working at another publishing company at, at that point, but I actually got him into Restaurant Magazine. So he came and, and worked and, and did just what he does everywhere, which is sell brilliantly. He's one of the best salespeople I've, I've ever met. So he came and worked with me at Restaurant Magazine. And then when I left to go and set up my, my own business, um, I asked Andy to come in with me. So he became a shareholder in the business and we effectively set up the new co together. So yeah, you know, three, four times we've worked together now and uh, like an old married couple, we uh, we still get along quite well actually. So you've gone home, made mm-hmm. you dundered again. Yeah. Sure, uh, the missus is delighted. Yeah, really. Uh, and you're just um, about to embark on, you know, the most important journey of life, mm. becoming a parent. Um, so you've had to think about what business to set up at this Very point. Much so. so what were your motivations you thinking behind setting up that business so my my idea was that i wanted to do something in media marketing events because that's what i knew i could do um i wanted it to be in the restaurant sector because that's what i loved and what i'd been doing for five years and you know i built up good reputation and credibility and contacts and networking in that field and I wanted it to be in Manchester because the, the whole point was that I've, I wanted something that was based in my home city so I just I basically emailed everyone that I'd met through restaurant magazine and restaurant magazine opened so many so many doors for me I met so many interesting people and built so many fantastic contacts so I just kind of made a list of everyone that I knew who was in a, a powerful position where they could theoretically 
helped me to set something up and who I'd clicked with or got on with. Um, I just sent them all an email saying I'm setting up a business, I'm, I'm fishing around for projects, what, what have you got, what could we maybe work together on? And I got loads and loads of responses and, and some absolutely amazing ideas, things that I never would have thought of that, that sounded quite exciting. But there was one company down in London, they were called Quantum Business Media and they were one of these big kind of publishing and events companies. And they did things like Press Gazette and PR Week. Uh, they also did Meet Trades Journal, which um, you know was a, a gripping read. And they also did a lot in hospitality, which is how I'd got to know them. So they did the restaurant show, they did a bar show, they did a pub show down in London, and they also did Publican, which was the big pub newspaper. Mm. Uh, they later sold that for 20 million quid. I mean, that was a big old thing. Um, they did a bar magazine and they did hotel and restaurant magazine. And I knew that they'd also bought the rights to a concept called Taste of London, which was this huge outdoor food festival, which has grown into a massive thing now. They run Taste Of all over the world in lots of different cities, mainly capital cities. But at that point, they only had London, and I knew that they might be interested in rolling it out across the country. So I thought I could maybe work with them and help do Taste of Manchester, Taste of Liverpool, Taste of Leeds. And they said, look, we're, not, we're nowhere near that yet. We're not ready for that. But we have an event, we have an exhibition in Manchester, a trade exhibition for the hospitality industry um, that's not doing great and it's probably a bit of a distraction. They were private equity backed and I, I think they knew they were they were kind of coming to that wind down point where they were all going to exit so they really wanted to focus on the things that really made them money and just get rid of anything that um, was marginal. So they said we've got this show in, uh, in Manchester, would you like to buy it? And I thought, okay, you know, it's a, it's a big old exhibition, thousands of visitors and hundred and odd exhibitors. It's probably probably bigger than I was expecting, but yeah, you know, it's in Manchester. I kind of know about events, albeit I didn't know about exhibitions apart from attending them. And it's food and drink, it's restaurants, it's bars, it's hospitality. So I think we could have a crack at that. So um, we pulled together some money. My my dad put some money in, and um, I put some money in, and Andy put some money in, and. Uh, we kind of got a little pot of cash together and then we, we got bank funding for the rest of it, which was you know, a laborious process and, and helped to <laughs> harden my long-term hatred of bank <laughs> bureaucracy, um, which has you know, scarred me for life. And they did all the, all the classic thing. They meet you, they make you do loads of projections and paperwork and they say it's going to sail through and not a problem, we're really happy about this. And then at the last minute they said, we're not lending. And I remember being on the train coming back from London and having to phone the FD and say, we can't, we can't do it. I stood by the toilet in the little vestibule, and I remember vividly the phone call, saying, we can't do it. I've just heard the bank have pulled it. We've, we've got like a little pot of money between us, but we're 80% away from where you need to be. And I, I thought that was it. I thought it was going to be a two-minute phone call. But he kept saying, but what, how much have you got? Well, what could you do? And I was like, well, this. You know, told him the number. Not, not a massive amount of um, money, really. And he said, well, how about if we lent you the rest, interest-free, and you pay us back over time, you just earn out of it. And I thought, bloody hell, that'd be cool. Better option. Better option. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I'm not sure. dealing with awful banks. This could yeah. be amazing. So we said yes, and we did the deal. Um, and it was, it was kind of surreal, really, because an event doesn't exist unless you're doing the actual event. 
So technically, we've paid this massive amount of money and we drove down to their offices in Croydon and kind of met the team and they gave us like a 10-minute, this is how you run an exhibition talk. And then they give you like a little plastic crate with some marketing collateral in and a, and a disc with some data on. And it's like, there you go. That's that then. You know, I remember putting it in the back of the car with me and Andy and thinking, well, that, I've just bought an exhibition. It's just in a little plastic box in the, in the boot. But that was it. We, we did it and we, we bought it and we took it on. Um, and without wanting to jump ahead too much we we grew it incredibly fast just to kind of finish off the the quantum story and I, th- I think we probably had an eye that we knew the private equity guys would want it out in two years and we felt at that point they wouldn't want like you know this one loose thread on the spreadsheets of a five-year earnout deal with some tiny tin pot company up in manchester so there might be a deal to be done and that's exactly mm. how it turned out after two years we we'd done well enough that we could strike a kind of pence in the pound deal with them and just pay them back in the entirety and have have full ownership of it you know many years ahead of schedule and, and that was a really exciting moment brilliant let, let me just review what you've said there tom so don't like working for people no want to do something that you love mm-hmm. and enjoy very important and you want to be in manchester yeah uh, and basically the decision that you've come to fits the bill, ticks all of those boxes in terms of you establishing your own business. And I often say to people, when they say to me, give us a piece of advice in terms of what you should do setting your own business up, you've got to love it. Mm. And I don't mean like, right? You've got to love it because there are days, sometimes weeks, over the past year, months, where you will be facing challenges that you would never thought yeah. that you would face. Without a doubt. And therefore, if you are not absolutely in love with the thing that you do, you are going to find it extremely difficult, if not impossible, to sustain your personal commitment to that business. Uh, and so it's really interesting to drill into that rationale mm. behind your decision-making processes, albeit over a number of years. Um, but, you know, I know, because clearly we've got to know you a little bit better over the past 12 months or so, that it absolutely was the right decision because you're so. really passionate, committed. And despite what we've gone through over the last four, 14 months, which we'll talk about in the second part of the discussion today, you're still here. Mm. So... Tell us about quantum then, how that sort of ran itself out and, and how it actually concluded in the way you'd suggested and predicted it would. Yeah, so we, we took the show on and the reason we bought the show, we, look, we looked at the numbers, um, the kind of underlying numbers, because it, it was a show in poor health. I had actually, I'd kind of attended it a couple of times and, um, and it was badly run and it was unloved. And frankly, a hospitality industry show with, you know, drinks, exhibitors and stuff like that, it felt like a bit of a piss up. It didn't feel very professional. Um, so it, it was not a quality thing that we were buying. But, and I suppose this maybe goes back to the, the science point I made earlier. If you actually dug into the numbers, there was clearly there was clearly a large hospitality industry, large and growing hospitality industry within kind of two hours of Manchester, that Liverpool leads um, Manchester kind of M62 corridor and surrounds, there was a big population of hospitality professionals and it was growing fast and they did not go to the trade exhibitions down in London because it's just too far, it's too much money. I mean, some people go, 
But the numbers were that for the big London shows and Quantum owned these big London shows, they got less than 5% of their visitors from the north of England. But 42% of UK licensed premises were in the north of England. So there was an, you, look, you drill down the numbers and there was an, an enormous and immediate disparity there. Um, and that made me think, OK, all we have to do is make the show good and make it relevant and make it connected. There's no argument that there's an audience there. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. The idea of a hospitality trade show is well established and works all over the world. There's no, there's no gamble there. This is a proven model. We just need to connect it into the community and make those two things gel to, together, make people believe in it, make them you know, admire it and like it, prove to them that it's useful, make them proud of it, really, of having a big trade exhibition in the north of England. So we felt we could do that. You know, the, the underlying audience was there. It was just going to be a case of... Of working hard, you know, of, of selling hard, of changing people's minds, of, of representing the show, and just getting out, meeting everyone, being on the ground up there. Because the problem that Quantum had was they were based in London, they were down in Croydon, they had all their big shows in London. They tried to do Manchester by coming up on the train a couple of yeah, times a you year. Can't. Yeah, yeah. You can't do it. You've yeah. got to live and breathe it. You have yeah. to be here. You don't. You don't build the relationships. Yeah. You don't judge the market. You don't see the opportunities. You don't generate the goodwill. And also, to be entirely fair to them, the London shows are bigger and make them more money. Mm. So if they're under pressure, if they're short-staffed, if they're worrying about targets, the London shows get the love. And, and Manchester was feeling like it was just kind of being rolled out a bit by numbers. Yeah. Um, there was no love and no drive and no character and no, no personality in that. So, yeah, we, we felt, without um, kind of making light of what we did over the next couple of years, we felt that, that that was an easy thing to put right because we were passionate about it and we were on the ground in Manchester and in North. So those two issues were immediately removed, almost reversed. Um, so we felt we could unlock that potential audience that was there. They just needed the right show. So we're now on the cusp of uh, becoming really successful business yep. and uh, when we get into the second part of the program we'll talk about you know the the sort of uh, how that translated into success um, but then we'll also turn into you know two redundancies and a pandemic really isn't it yeah so um, let's take a short break uh, and we will talk about the challenges of the last 14 months and how we think the events industry is going to recover from what has been a torrid time. Um, so stay with us and we'll be back after this short break. We are delighted that Downtown in Business can get back to doing what we do best, host live events. We've facilitated over £2 billion worth of deals since we launched DIB back in 2003, but I don't know anyone who's done a £1 million deal on a Zoom call. So it's time to get off Zoom and get back in a room. We have a bonanza of events through the summer and beyond, including awards dinners in Manchester, Birmingham and Liverpool, and an eclectic programme of events from next week, ranging from small roundtable discussions to larger social occasions. Our list of impressive speakers include Michael Heseltine, Sir Richard Lees, Jess Phillips, John Roney, Sir Graham Brady, Tony Reeves, Tom Reardon, and many more. And in the autumn, we'll be hosting our inaugural National Property and Regeneration Conference at the Belfry in September and our annual parliamentary reception in Westminster. For details of our Bonanza Events programme, go to allthews.downtowninbusiness.com and we really do look forward to welcoming you to an in-person 
downtown event very soon. Okay, welcome back to a frank conversation with Tom Hetherington. And before the break, we were talking about the sort of uh, fabulous success that you had uh, with Quantum and the trade show in Manchester. I think you were very modest in, in terms of the way in which you described the success of that show. Um, but you're on the cusp now, Tom, mm. of a, a really successful business, having gone through uh, the turmoil of being rejected by the bank and then yeah. getting the money from the character building uh, people that you're buying the business off. Um, so what's next? What happens then? Um, well, I suppose if you fast forward slightly, what we did was we, we fucked it up, really. Um, and we, we did that out of youthful naivety, really, and, and ambition. You know, it's the, it's the kind of classic, uh, classic story. Um, we'd taken over the show um, and we did turn it around and... You know, without going on too long about it, we, we did that through exactly the, the kind of things that we outlined before. We fought for the industry, we, you know, we represented the industry, we were vocal about it, we got out, we met everyone, and, and we worked hard. We got on the phone and we closed deals and you know, got more funding in and more money in, and then you can invest a bit more. And we turned it into a, a real kind of platform for the hospitality industry in the north of England, and, and we doubled it in size, really, in, in two to three years. And then the, there was an exhibition company in, um, in London called Single Market Events, run by an absolute legend of the, of the exhibition industry called, um, called Tim Etchells. And he was a really interesting bloke. Um, and what he did, he had this business where he had a brilliant eye for launching exhibitions and investing in them, having a really talented, smart team, and building them up, and then he'd sell them again and make a big load of money. And then he'd be launching something else. He was always launching and always selling. So what it meant is that rather than getting a bigger and bigger and bigger kind of bloated company with huge HR and you know all the issues that come with that, he could keep a really tight entrepreneurial team and a really kind of creative, fleet-footed company. Um, but he got the payback because he was, you know, he constantly had five or six events on the go. So he used to run the Good Food Show. Um, he owned London Fashion Weekend. He had an investment in the British Motor Show. And, and he would find any new sector that he thought was on the up. Last time I spoke to him, he's doing a, an event for the podcast industry. You know, he's, mm -hmm. he's got in on that. Really clever guy. And I thought, do you know what? I, I'd quite like to do like a northern version of that. That, that mm -hmm. speaks to me, the idea of constantly the thrill of launching, the thrill of creating something out of nothing and keeping a, a smaller team. I, I really like that. So we actually ended up doing a joint venture with him. In fact, this is a terrible story. This is a scarring story, but I'm, I'm going to tell this story. We did, we did an event for him. Uh, we did an event with him. He had a show in London and also in Sydney and Melbourne called RSVP, which was for the corporate hospitality market. Uh, it's a fantastic show. And he and I had been talking. He was almost like a bit of a mentor, really. We used to go for lunch and I uh, used to pick his brains. And he said, why don't we do an RSVP North and we'll do one in Manchester and we'll do it together <clears throat> as a joint venture. So I said, well, unbelievable. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be amazing. So we did that and we, we were looking at launching a couple of other exhibitions as well. You know, we were kind of growing and moving into these different markets. We came up a fantastic idea for the creative and media industry, an event called Hubbub, which we were kind of working on. We had on the, on the back burner. So it was all, it was all really, really, really exciting. And, and, you know, we felt like a proper 
proper big boy company. We had a little nameplate, and I got um, I got a coat rack, which made made me feel again. I really have a grown up office now, where people come in and hang coats up, and we had sofas like a little breakout area, um, and yeah, it felt proper. We had a great office on the edge of um, the northern quarter, what is now Ancoats, backing onto Ancoats, and it was a good time. And then a funny thing happened with RSVP um, that Tim actually sold RSVP. And I thought, okay, well, what, what does that mean for us? And it actually turned out in the con- he sold it to a, an Australian PLC, massive um, media company over there. It turned out there was, if I'm, uh, probably any lawyers listening in will tell me I'm saying this wrong, but there was a kind of drag and tag deal in there. Yeah. So whoever bought RSVP had to also buy our share of RSVP North. Mm. And it's like, oh, well, that's, that's quite cool. Okay, we've got, we've got an exit. This could be good. But then I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, this show's only two years old. And normally, if you, build, if you launch a show, it'll grow pretty fast for the first three or four years. There was actually a clause in the contract that we could not go when he exited. We could stay in for another year and then exit on exactly the same terms a year down the line. Mm. So I thought, this show's going to be a bit bigger, because we'll have had another year on it. I'll have built a relationship with what are clearly an acquisitive international PLC. Maybe they'll want to buy the whole business. It's mm. sensible to kind of build those relationships. So I, th- I think we'll stay in, Tim. You know, you sell all the rest of it. We're, we're going to stay in. And then we hit the financial collapse in 2008. <laughs> and um, I've always thought to this day, the one thing that I think good entrepreneurs have and the one thing that Tim has in spades is timing. His timing is brilliant. He gets in and he gets out at the right time. And the one painful lesson that I've learned is that if Tim gets out, get out with him. Don't try and double guess Tim Etchell. So we stayed in a year too long. We hit the financial crisis. And this is actually quite a nice segue into talking about where we've ended up with the pandemic. We hit the financial crisis and it, it devastated the entire economy, but it particularly devastated the exhibition industry. Because with an exhibition industry, what you are effectively selling is a very long-term marketing opportunity with a big cost attached. And in that climate, people weren't doing marketing. They certainly weren't doing long-term You know, the idea that you're going to sign up for a show that will happen in eight months and you might see a return 18 months down the line. People were saying, I don't know whether my business is going to be here next month. You know, I'm I'm not interested. Never. So the entire exhibition industry collapsed. I think it lost like over over 50 percent that year in terms of the kind of global industry and its, um, its GDP. Things like the British Motor Show, which had run for 130 years crashed, closed, never opened again. It just killed it, stone dead. It, it was an absolutely decimating... Um, quite literally a car it, crash. It, it was literally <laughs> a car crash, yeah, very much so. That, that is the exact analogy. Um, and in amongst all this, we were this little business in, in Manchester. And we'd made a couple of mistakes, really. We'd, uh, there's probably two classes of mistakes that we'd made. We weren't very good at HR on the financial side. We probably didn't have enough kind of head office resilience. We probably needed a a wiser head and more structure in there to restrain some of our natural entrepreneurial exuberance. We tried to do too much. We didn't have cash in the bank for for, a rainy day. Uh, We'd probably taken on too much overhead. We were just a little loose and a little unfocused and a little overstretched. And that's fine when times are good but it's pretty lethal when, when times are, are not good. And then I think with something like NRB, going, I, when you first asked me this question, what did you do next? Well, we kind of fucked it up. Um, we did because Andy and I both come from a sales background. And, and 
if there are stands to be sold in the show, you, you'll sell them, you know. But you end up in a situation like they say, if you feed a goldfish, it'll, it'll eat itself to death. It'll just keep eating. We just kept selling stands because that was the measure of, of success. And I think in the recession, it made people look at the show and being brutal and being honest, they probably looked at the show and thought, are we seeing enough return on investment mm. on this in the cold light of day? And we had to look at it and go, do you know what? We probably... We were too worried about the sales side and what we didn't think about is the ratio, the audience and maintaining those balances and making sure that everyone who exhibits or as many people as you can have a really good time and come back again. We'd, we'd not seen that thread or we hadn't appreciated how important that thread was. So we, we had um, an absolutely brutal couple of years we had to make people redundant and you know I've been made redundant twice and and that wasn't great but making people redundant is a thousand times worse one of the worst things that I've ever had to do in my life um you know it's pretty emotionally scarring and it's it's a big not to your ego to have your business kind of collapse and shrink and have to give up your good city center offices and and all of that sort of thing all of the events that we'd wanted to do, we had to kind of get rid of. Um, RSVP, I think we ended up, RSVP North, getting a token couple of grand for it uh, from the Australian PLC when it could have been half a million quid if we'd, uh, if we'd stepped away when Clever Tim had stepped away. Um, so, yeah, we ended, up, we ended up, you know, completely cut back really to two things, two events which we thought were really strong and we really felt passionate about, which was Northern Restaurant and Bar and Manchester Art Fair at the time. It was called Buy Art Fair, but, uh, but the same thing. They were our two core products and we ended up taking a little tiny office um, above a baker's on the high street in Glossop, which was 49 quid a week, including rent, rates, utilities, bills, everything. It was just like a terrace shop front. So we were crammed in there. Um, I didn't even have um, a desk. I had the, the edge of a, a set of shelves, which I, I used to sit at. You couldn't get your knees under it and kind of type away there. And it was myself and Andy and our marketing manager called, uh, called Claire, who's, uh, who's fantastic. It was really just the, the three of us. And it was, almost, it was almost like starting again. Mm. You know, it's like we've built this business up once. Mm. We're now older and wiser. Um, I always say that recession was probably more beneficial than doing an MBA at Harvard, and it probably cost me a lot more money. Uh, mm. But I learned a lot from that, like having your heart broken. I think you can't book learn it. You have to kind of, you have to go yeah. through these things. So we thought we're going to build this up again. We can, uh, we can do this. And then <clears throat> at the time, <clears throat> I'd really got into running. And then um, I was having problems with my knees, so my physio convinced me to start doing mountain biking again. I used to mountain bike when I was younger, so I did. <clears throat> and um, I had a mountain bike crash coming down a hill above Glossop and uh, knocked myself unconscious, shattered my elbow so badly that they thought they were going to have to remove the joint and I'd have to have a, an artificial joint and broke ribs and broke teeth. And uh, I had a helmet on. I'd only started wearing a helmet a month a couple of months before, wow. the kids had bought me one for Christmas to force me to wear it. And the side of the helmet was completely smashed in. And uh, yeah, I, honestly, without over-dramatising, I would have been dead mm. if, if I hadn't had the helmet on. And I knocked myself unconscious. I was out on my own. So I've no idea what actually happened. But eventually I, I woke up with a dislocated shoulder and a smashed elbow and dragged my bike all the way back home. Turned up covered from head to toe in, uh, in blood. And um, I had to go in for a huge emergency operation. And this is just when we're trying to rebuild our business in our, in our little tiny office. And uh, I had to take Tramadol for weeks because of the, of the pain. And I was not only trying to do all the selling, but I also had to do all the kind of office admin and you know, go back to typing all my own invoices like I used to when I first set up the company. And I only had my, I only had my left hand. So I was in a tiny office with no desk, having to type left-handed off my head on Tramadol 
typing out bloody invoices and trying to rebuild this this company it was one of the maddest maddest times of my life and in in some ways I don't quite know how we how we kind of got through it but we did and we we built the company up again without jumping ahead we built the company up again and um to use the phrase of, of the moment we we built back back better um and I'm actually really proud that we haven't we we took on a, a couple of other people soon after we started growing the company again but after that we haven't gained or lost a member of staff since 2011 we've kept the same team uh, tight as a drum and there's a couple of things which we we learned without wanting to skim over them there's two really important things that we learned with every kind of disaster and thing we've hit we've really learned stuff and I think what we learn from from that crisis is that we would never overstretch ourselves again and actually even having 14 or 15 people felt like too many we would actually keep the tightest smallest team that we can and be as smart as possible doing the most kind of the most efficient work that we can to make really good money and do stuff that we're really proud of but do it with with this tight overhead so we're still a, a kind of team of six people most of whom are, are part-time that's the, the core team really with this tiny little team so we worked out that that's what we like and we would never end up in debt we're never going to have an overdraft you know we're never going to overstretch ourselves we're going to be very structured and very controlled and and really keep it keep it tight and neat so we learned that that was the sort of business a, a it was important and b we enjoyed that sort of business no hr issues no recruitment issues a team that you can really trust and depend on that was lovely um the other thing that we realized was that Ultimately, the, the size of our shows and, and the success of the company is, is not going to be dictated by how many stands we can sell. It's going to be dictated by the size and the quality of audience that comes through the door. So we actually had a responsibility, a, a selfish altruism responsibility of doing everything we could for the greater good of northern hospitality and the, the northern culture scene as well. Because the bigger and more robust and more exciting and more dynamic those worlds are, will ultimately pay back around into the size of our show, the audience through the door, and then we can sell more stands. If our audience is 20% bigger, we'll sell 20% more stands, and then we'll make some more money. So we really got into our heads the idea that we would, we would play this long game of doing it for the good of the industry, and then the industry will ultimately kind of pay back to you. It will come back around. Um, and that, that played to my strengths, because, again, I like getting out. I like meeting people. I like being involved. I like coming up with ideas and connecting people and making stuff happen, that's always been the thrill to me. So although I'd been doing it anyway, that was the point that we really formalised this idea of me being like a, a person who's just out there in the middle of it all the time, you know, involved in everything, active, visible, vocal, an ambassador and an advocate and a connector and, you know, an influencer and all of those things for the industries. Um, and we had this really good, amazing little team of people back in the office who knew exactly how to deliver the exhibitions. So it kind of freed me up to <coughs> go and, and take this, uh, this role out in the industry, which I, I've reveled in. I've loved every minute of it and really that's been my focus now for the last 10 years and that's how we've grown the company and developed the company is, is through the opportunities that, or, or knowledge or insight that have come out, or the goodwill, you know, the relationships that have come out of me being out in the midst of it, you know, fighting for the industry, fighting for the region, fighting for the cities up here all the time. It just constantly creates things that can feed back into the company and help the company develop. And once again, we return to that notion <coughs> that, you know, you're doing something that you love and you enjoy, but equally... You're doing something that plays into your talents. Uh, and again, I'd say, Tom, uh, whether you'd agree with this, but where you often see 
business owners and businesses fail it is when the entrepreneur starts to get involved with things that they actually don't enjoy and actually as a result they're not particularly good at so for me it's managing people mm-hmm. crap yeah um finance crap yeah um probably all the things that you're supposed to be able to do to have a really successful business yeah i'm not particularly great at and it's having people around you who you trust who you can actually delegate to uh, with a degree of confidence that it's hugely important and you clearly have managed to develop that sort of team ethic and that culture within your yeah. business that frees you up to go and do the things that you're great at. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the the success of the company, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the growth of the company, it is, it is down to that team of people and what they do and what they achieve. They're absolutely <clears throat> fantastic and I might get credit for it because I'm, I'm the visible bit, I'm the front end and I'm out there, but I'm, I'm fully aware and I try to make everyone else fully aware as well that I am, I am just the icing on the top of the, the cherry on the top, whatever. I'm just the froth really, you know. It's, it's those guys and it's what they do day in, day out in the office and it's their abilities in the fields of marketing or operations or sales. That's what powers the company. You know, that, that, is, that is the engine of it. And uh, I, I am lucky that I've found a team of people who I really, really like and who I trust implicitly. And it's a bit of a hackneyed phrase, people talk about this, but we are, we are like a family. You know, mm. the same set of people have been together now for 11 years. And of this tiny set of six people, one of them is my partner, uh, my, my girlfriend. One of them is, is the guy who taught me to sell nearly 30 years ago or whatever it is now, 25 years ago. And one of them is my sister-in-law. So we almost are like a little tight family business. And, uh, you know, you, you just raised two points, which I am, I am also terrible at. I'm terrible at managing um, and I'm, I'm not particularly good at, at finances. So just to be able to leave those to other people or have a situation where there isn't a lot of management to be done because everyone just knows what they're doing and gets on with it. It's just bliss. It makes me happy. You know, <laughs> it's, it's like reading a self-help book, but running your own business, get rid of the toxic things that you don't enjoy or... or pass them on and and just focus on the stuff that you're good at and and you're going to be happy aren't you and also you're going to make money i think if you're good at anything and you do it well and you do it with passion it's incredible how it actually starts generating revenue streams it's amazing but if going back to the point we made earlier if you chase the money it it can be a bit of a you know it's like a a kind of gatsby-ish green lantern you you never actually kind of get to it it's just always there in front of you I, i think just find something you love that you're good at and just put heart and soul into it. And, and it's amazing how the world kind of tends to come around to, to your way of thinking. It tends to fit around you. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And so, listen, it, it's just been um, such a roller coaster ride, this top. Hmm. Um, the crash, both in terms of financial and the buy, mm-hmm. uh, has created challenges, I'm sure, at the time. Interesting, this comment that you made about Tim knowing exactly when to sell. There was another Tim who I knew uh, reasonably well, Tim Bacon. Absolutely, he was a good friend. Who absolutely had that, you know, whatever that is. It's magic. He just knew, didn't he, when to get rid. I I remember speaking to him when he sold the living room in Liverpool, which was the venue at the time. Uh, It was still really busy. Absolutely. uh, Probably not at the peak of its powers. Um, but the fact that he was able to predict what was going to happen next, which was quite a sharp decline yeah. in that part of town. And 
quite it's transient, isn't it? Yeah. The hospitality sector, uh, and so you know, all of a sudden there were lots of bars and restaurants opening in Liverpool, and Sim sold that for a, a good chunk of cash. And it's never been the same since. Yeah. I think that's a combination of the fact that you've got no Tim Bacon around. But equally, he just saw, yeah. you know, he read the tea leaves somewhere. Yeah. And that's a particular knack and skill, I think. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, interesting that you've said that and totally uh, get where you're coming from. Um, again, I know people who've missed out on that sort of money, who've become really angry and quite bitter. Um, so credit to you, that certainly not happened. <laughs> you learned the lesson. Yeah, you and, do and learn you the moved lesson. On. But then you've travelled through this journey, built the business back up, mm-hmm. got to a point where it's not suggesting plain sailing because your own business never is, but at a point where you're very comfortable yeah. in terms of, right, we're doing these great things. Yeah. We know our audience. We know our customer base. We've got a great team in place. It's running brilliantly. 18 months ago, we had it exactly where we wanted it. It was, you know, on, on the verge of our wildest dreams, really, in how it was performing. And then... And then... Coronavirus. Yeah. And, and listen, uh, two things I want to talk to you about here. One is the impact on your business and personally, mm-hmm. which clearly has been huge yeah. in the industry sector. But also, you know, you are uh, somebody who cares deeply uh, about the people you work with, about yeah. your colleagues, about your customer base. Mm-hmm. And of course, hospitality has been whacked, hasn't it? Yeah. Badly. So, yeah, let's get your reflections on the past 14 months. Well, it's been, um, it's been gruesome. For everyone, um, you know, we're talking about a pandemic here where 130,000 people have died in the UK alone. Uh, you can't begin to get your head around it. But looking more specifically at how it's it's affected my business and, and my sector, it's like going back to the days of the of the crash. Really, you know, the industry just stopped dead overnight. Um, and I'm, I'm fully aware of how business has been affected. Obviously, we're, we're intimately involved with the hospitality industry and with the culture sector as well. And we, we've seen every step of how they've suffered, um, it, you know, especially with these kind of reopenings and unlockings and then in different tiers and you can open in this way or that way. Horrific. You know, it's like being gaslit. It's, it's just madness. But in a way, it's sometimes worse for the exhibitions industry because we have not been able to open at all. Not at all. We just got... Closed overnight, with no warning, like a lot of people, but that's it, done, finished. And For the whole 14 months? Yeah, there's never been any conversation about the exhibition industry um, reopening. Um, Lots uh, of support, though, from the government? Funnily enough, no. No, we, we seem to have fallen through all sorts of uh, gaps. We have an industry association, the AEO, the Association of Exhibition Organisers, who have actually, they've really kind of pulled together and pulled the industry together and have done a phenomenal job of, of lobbying government and trying to get them um, to appreciate that not only are we particularly vulnerable as an industry, but also particularly trade shows, trade exhibitions will be an engine of the recovery. You know, after 18 months of businesses being shut and people not meeting and relationships dying off and things going cold, actually having big industry get-togethers and having all of the cross-pollination of ideas and just rekindling stuff and, you know, new products and new thinking and all that sort of thing, that is going to be a massive part of unlocking the recovery. So our pitch to government was 
you need to protect us now because we are fucked. We're completely closed. And you need to protect us for your own interest because we will help you deliver all of the things that you say are going to happen in this kind of this bounce back and uh, you know this this recovery. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been a, a decimating time. Um, and the only thing I would say, and again, this is about this is about learning your lessons. We were in a much better position financially this time around. Um, you know, we, we've never been swimming in cash because that's not something that we've particularly chased. But we were in a robust enough financial position that we've been able to, to kind of get through. We've had access to, to funding, etc., as has been needed. And the other thing I'd say is that in 2008, no one wanted to help you. And, you know, although I can knock the government's response on all sorts of fronts, actually having the bank giving you a bounce back or giving you a C-bill... It's pretty miraculous. They weren't there. I don't like taking on debt. I've worked very hard to get this company out of debt. But in the last recession, I would have snatched someone's hand off for debt and it was not there. There was no offer. No bank would talk to you in the, in the recession about in any way trying to help you through. So to actually have not just the specifics like the Siebel loans and the, the bounce backs, but just a general feeling that we're all in this together and that the government are trying to do some things and there is some level of support furlough as well uh, and the you know the kind of grants you get from the from the local authorities it has felt different this time so i think we were smarter and leaner and more match fit and more prepared for a bump in the road we were probably expecting brexit to be the the kind of bump so we'd almost got ourselves match fit and fighting weight so we were we were in good nick for whatever brexit might bring and it just so you know just turned out that we were perfect and match fit for a bloody covid <laughs> Um, so yeah, we we've learned from that, and we we've kind of we've got through that. And then I think the the other thing I'd say from an exhibition industry point of view is exhibition organisers they've all kind of responded in different ways. And the, and the immediate knee jerk thing that people have done is to is to say we're going to do an, an online event, we're going to do a digital event, and. I'm, I'm not. I'm not rubbishing that concept at all because it, you know, it's an existing concept. Um, concept to put content online and all the rest of it. That's fine. But the whole idea of it being an online event, I just, I can't get my head around. I know what an event is, and an event is people being in a room and eye contact and you know, body language. You're talking to people when you're interacting with them, and then going for a drink afterwards or whatever. You know, it's it's. That's an event. It's a live experience. If you stick something online, it can still have value and it can still be a really important piece of work, but it's, but it's not an event. And although you think there's a lot of commonality, doing an event, doing content online, you know, you have a theatre with seminars going on in an event, we'll just put that same kind of content online. I just think it's a bit of a dangerous game because I'm an event organiser. I'm not a publisher anymore. And there's plenty of people out there doing publishing and doing online publishing. You'll know this as well. And, it, and it's tough. You know, the idea that I can suddenly be not one but two things and be really good at events and also just suddenly overnight become an online publisher or a broadcaster. You know, some of these exhibition companies are almost trying to become broadcasters. They've got their own, you know, YouTube channels and they're pumping out video content constantly. It just doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like what we are or who we are. And I think what it really made me think about is that the, the events... They are about content. And what we learned in the last recession is that content and audience are key. It's not sales driven. It's about content and it's about audience. And that is what you must get right. What I've probably learned from COVID is that it's not just about content for content's sake. It's about engagement. It's about connections. It's about people's little interactions and meetings. And that, that almost, that spontaneity and that spark, that is what an event is. And that's not an easy thing to 
create in these kind of online event platforms. You know, you'll have like a, an awards thing online and then there's a chat room where all the sponsors can chat to people. You know and I know. There's no one in there having idle chats, you know. It just... No one's going to do that. It just it doesn't work. It happens in a live event where you're all in a room and everyone's got a drink in their hand and people are introducing. It doesn't happen in an online format and we can't pretend that it does. So because we felt that we could see our, our kind of way through, initially we hoped that COVID was going to be kind of burnt out within six months, but we didn't panic into this idea of doing, um, doing online events or pumping out huge volumes of kind of online content. What we really thought about is what can we do the industries that, that we serve, and particularly the hospitality industry, was the one that was absolutely smashed from day one. So we used our voice and our reach that we had as NRB. We have 25,000 people on our email database. We've got huge social media reach. We created something called NRB Assist that actually pulled together all of the advice and all of the kind of the, the sources that you need to go to for support or whatever it might be, um, anything that was kind of free and available, whether it's kind of classes or seminars or whatever, we pulled all of that together, distilled all that, and we kind of pumped out that email every week to try, and even like best practice and some good news stories in there as well, just kind of keep the industry together and, and try and support them in, in the ways that we could. Um, so we focused on that and, and I think, you know, we'd been doing it anyway, but we realised that it was going to be very, very important to bang the drum for the industry and, and to fight for the industry and also for the cultural industry and generally for, for Manchester and the cities in the north of England anyway. They need people to, to stand up and be counted. So we worked really hard on that. We joined the, uh, the, the business standing board in Manchester that Sir Richard Lee set up to look at how the city is going to... Um, going to kind of recover and, and, and get better from the uh, recession. We worked with Visit Manchester on their tier group, which was the Tourism Industry Emergency Response Group, working out how culture and events and venues and the, the visitor economy is going to get through COVID and get out the other side. Uh, you end up kind of on these um, all-party parliamentary groups trying to speak to government and trying to represent the sectors. We did, we did loads of that. We just absolutely threw ourselves into everything that we could for the greater good. To go back to that idea again, I want this industry to survive because I love it. I always also want it to survive because it supports my business. So we kind of, we took the time while we cannot run big exhibitions to just do everything we could to fight the corner for, for the industries that um, support and sustain us. And the other thing that we did is with the art fair, rather than just going, we're going to do an online art fair, we actually took a step back and we said, if you have online as a medium, and you're all about connecting artists to art buyers and selling art, would you do an online art fair? No, you probably wouldn't. You'd start from scratch and you'd build a bespoke platform. So we, we launched something called Easel, um, which, is, which is an online art sales platform. And it's actually, it's going really well. It's building, we've sold £100,000 of art already that's really supported artists during this absolutely appalling time. And, it, and it's growing and growing and growing. Uh, we've got an idea that we're working on at the minute, another tech play that relates to NRB and the hospitality industry, which we're hopefully going to launch in, in the coming months. So what I'm hoping is that we can kind of keep our powder dry on the exhibitions rather than rushing them back too early or compromising them or trying to bend them into some weird online model. The events are almost sat there on ice, ready to come back. And in the meantime, we're going to work on these tech plays and we're going to work on supporting our industry and we will come out the other side still with two very strong exhibitions, hopefully with a healthy industry and some kind of credit in the bank for having done our bit and fought for that industry. And we will have two 
tech platforms as well, which are a really nice counterbalance to the rest of the business because they're subscription-based, they're recurring revenue models. You know, it's quite a, a nice uh, counter, uh, counterbalance in terms of the cash flow and the business model. So we will actually come out of it a kind of better balanced and, and hopefully, you know, well-respected business, a better respected business because, we, you know, we've done our bit and, um, yeah, we've, we've done our bit for the industry. We've fought for everyone and, uh, yeah, we'll come out the other side. And I, I think the one thing with the exhibition industry, a bit like the hospitality industry, is that no one, no one has ever wavered that it's going to come back strong. You know, this idea that after 18 months we might all suddenly think we don't like going to restaurants or we might all suddenly think that we don't want to go to a gig or a festival or, you know, a big exhibition or whatever it is. It's just rubbish. Mm. It's just rubbish. It's never going to happen in a million years. And I think, you know, that's already being proven with the limited unlocking of, of hospitality. We all know that if we, if we hold our line and if we hold our nerve and when we come back, we deliver it right, then large events and festivals and gigs and concerts and all of these things and hospitality and all of the things that bring people together in spaces and are exciting, sport, all of it, it it's going to come back. It's going to come back. And, I, you know, the industry is very bullish about that. Um, and, you know, not wanting to uh, tempt fate, but it, it feels like we are now getting to that point, you know, where, where everything is going to start turning again. And we had meetings just the other day, our, our internal planning meetings, where we could look at the art fair, which we have happening in November, and, and start planning, actually start looking forward. Instead of thinking about postponing events, you know, instead of just sitting there going, well, how do we do anything? Because no one knows what is going to happen. We're back in the normal cycle. We're six months out from a major event. We've got, you know, a third of it boxed off and sorted already. There's two thirds still to do. A lot of planning, content, partnerships. How are we going to approach the marketing? Are we going to tweak the branding? This is what we do. This is what we've done for 20 years. And suddenly we, we can do it. We can sit down and we can plan our next major event. And it just feels absolutely wonderful. I cannot tell you how lovely it's been over the last couple of weeks to have these meetings where we're looking forward, not back. And on that positive note, uh, Tom Hetherington, thanks for having a frank conversation with us today. It's very kind of you. Thank you for having me. Great to see you. And uh, we'll catch up as a live event very That would soon. be lovely. In person. <laughs> Top man. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. 